Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. Also a huge welcome to our listeners who are tuning in for the first time today to listen to us. We will be talking to NASA and a very special individual all the way from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Everyone here at Indian Genes is really happy that he has agreed to join us here today and spare his very valuable time as he talks to us. He has a bachelor's in geophysics and space physics from UCLA and a doctorate in planetary science from Caltech. He has virtually lived the last 8 years of his life on Mars through the Curiosity rover and I guess it's safe to say that if anyone knows anything about the conditions out there on Mars then that is our guest today. So we ask you to now sit back and relax as we virtually fly you to Mars on this Indian Genes exclusive with none other than Ashwin Wasawada, lead project scientist, Curiosity, NASA. Hello Ashwin and a big welcome to you from Indian Genes. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here and Thank you for taking time out from your busy schedule to talk to us. And thank you very much for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here and I look forward to a great discussion and hearing all the questions from everyone out there. Thanks Ashwin. A lot of our listeners know you and for those that don't, why don't you tell us something more about yourself and your role at NASA? Sure. Um yeah, I'm uh Ashwin Vasavada. I'm in California now. I work at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory and I'm a planetary scientist. So I uh, I'm a scientist who studies the planets. Um not just one but uh, several of them, but focusing on Mars for the past uh, several years. Right now I'm the project scientist, which is the lead scientist for the uh NASA Mars rover Curiosity. that launched in uh, 2011 and has been exploring Mars since 2012 so we're just about 8 years on Mars and we've had a wonderful time exploring and I get to lead a team of over 500 scientists around the world who uh, work with this rover every day and uh, make discoveries about Mars and uh, how did this happen for you at a personal level what inspired you to be a part of the space family and how early did this start for you and did you always know that uh, this was what you finally wanted to do i've been interested in space yeah since i was uh pretty young i think maybe when i was 9 or 10 years old i uh was um quite interested in seeing pictures of robotic spacecraft that had landed on mars in the 1970s and uh, also like the voyager spacecraft that flew by the outer planets also in that same time the 70s and 80s and seeing those pictures when i was growing up uh just was fascinating to me uh it really was this idea that you could send a robot to another world uh and have a virtual presence there and take pictures and almost have the same view that you would have if you were standing there yourself on the surface of mars and i think i just found those um images very um uh, very enticing and and I wanted to be uh involved in that. I wanted to be able to explore other planets. It was also the time when uh NASA was flying the space shuttle. So it was always very exciting to see it launch and um and orbit and then land. 
But for me, it really wasn't um, the idea that I wanted to be an astronaut or I wanted to go into space myself. Uh, what has driven me since I was young, I think really is the scientific exploration and, and just the idea of seeing things for the first time as a human being that no one's ever seen before and learning things about the planets through the robots that we are able to send into the solar system. Talking about the Voyager, that's an amazing story on its own, and it just keeps going. I think uh, it's, the, it's the furthest any spacecraft has ever gone since the 1970 and is still going. Uh, am I right? It's still operating. Yes, and uh, it is amazing that it's still operating. Uh, we, we, can, we build these spacecraft to last a certain amount of time, and we use our best engineering at the time to do that. And the fact that these robots were built in the 1970s with that technology, probably designed, I don't know the exact number, but probably designed for 10 years. And now they've lasted uh, upwards of, of 40 years or 50 years. It's, it's truly amazing. And, and we still talk to them. It can take um, a few days by the speed of light uh, for the information to get back between Earth and where Voyager is now. Uh, and so it just, it, it's really stunning that um, some days I'll walk around the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and there's a display that shows which spacecraft we're talking to in the solar system. And when I see Voyager on that display, it, it really reminds me that, you know, humans have extended their presence quite far out into the solar system now. And that, uh, that uh, spacecraft that we built so many years ago is, um, is out there at the front of our exploration these days. But I have to imagine that it's far exceeded anyone's expectations uh, for a, uh, a spacecraft like that um, in, in such a harsh environment of space with uh, radiation and very cold temperatures. Uh, all the electronics to, to be able to survive um, is truly amazing. And fortunately, it used a uh, nuclear power source similar to the one that we have on Curiosity. So... Uh, those you know radioactive materials that that power these spacecraft do last quite a long time but even they you know slowly decay and so you know voyager has been able to stay alive by uh, using only a fraction of the power that it once had uh, when it was first launched and uh, since the days of the viking one and three uh, the orbiter uh, and pathfinder there was a gap of about 17 years and the missions uh, were put on hold by NASA. Uh, what was the reason for this? Was it uh, technological upgrades or something else? Yeah, you know, planetary science and planetary exploration is a very expensive business. Uh, and because of that, it is often uh, subject to, you know, changes in, in, in politics in the United States or in any country around the world that does these um, sorts of things. So, you know, um, as much as we desire to keep planetary exploration going very aggressively, we are subject to uh, the, the money that we get from uh, taxpayers in the United States and also what's important uh, for policymakers at any given time. And we're able to capture the imagination of a lot of the people in Washington, D.C. by grand missions, uh, missions like Viking and Voyager uh, or the space shuttle, or Apollo, even for that matter. And then sometimes you'll see that when those missions are accomplished, uh, the policymakers would uh, 
may, may lose interest in a way and want to move on to something else uh, with these um, with the money that we have. So it's unfortunate, but but space exploration does seem to come in waves. Uh, we we do something, and then there's a gap, and then we're able to uh, come up with another idea that that um, resonates with people in Washington and resonates with the public. And right now, I think we're going through a, a really exciting time. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, uh, where uh, space is once again um, right at the front of of everyone's thinking and. I, I'm just, you know, very excited to be uh, a part of this now, and I look forward to what's going on in the next few years. Oh yes, these are very exciting times, and all the more reason we are very happy to be talking to you about this. Uh, it would be interesting to know from you uh, how did curiosity happen for you, and uh, for you personally, how did this journey begin? What got you started uh, with curiosity? Sure, I mean, so for me personally. Uh, I told I mentioned how when I was young I I really um set out to see how I could become uh, an explorer of the planets. I wanted to be involved in sending these spacecraft missions and you know growing up in California I, I knew that um uh, all this action was happening in Southern California where I am now. Uh so I was very fortunate to grow up at least you know somewhat near uh the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So I went to college uh, in Los Angeles um, and began working with, um, well, uh, studying aerospace engineering. I, I was thinking that uh, aerospace engineering was the way to get involved in these things. And um, and it turned out that even after a few years of school, of college, I realized that I wasn't so much um, fascinated by the engineering of it, uh, the technical aspects and the design of these spacecraft, but it really was the science that captivated me, the the discoveries that these spacecraft made. So it took me a little while in college to find my way to the right um, field of study. But by the time I graduated uh, from uh, the University of California in Los Angeles, uh, UCLA, um, I, I was a, um, a earth and space science major, meaning that I studied the, uh, the planets, including earth, and learn how to um, use spacecraft and other means to make discoveries about them. Uh, that led to um, getting a, a PhD at the California Institute of Technology in a similar field. And because Caltech uh, runs the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, it was quite easy to start working with people at JPL uh, and learning uh, how they did their work. So that's how I ended up getting um Finding my way, it took me a few years uh, to to find my way to uh, to the field and and how I got involved in it. Um, now, in terms of um, curiosity itself, uh, curiosity is is one step in a long program of missions that Mo- that uh, NASA has been running since about the 1990s uh, that are exploring Mars. And in about uh, as we talked about before with Viking, you know, in 1976, we tried to um, answer one of the you know most important questions that we could conceive of: Is there life outside of Earth? So we designed this you know very uh, ambitious project to land a spacecraft on the surface of Mars and to carry with it some experiments that could directly detect life. Uh, and those experiments um, were confusing to understand, and you know, um, now looking back, perhaps we weren't quite ready with the technology to be able to answer those questions. Uh, And um, it took a few decades for us to get back to Mars 
and more deliberately, more slowly explore it with a whole fleet of spacecraft starting in the 1990s that first mapped the planet using satellites, then sent uh, landers to specific places to follow up from what we were seeing from space uh, and progressed through you know, understanding how much water there was on Mars at different times in its history to then with curiosity, uh, our goal is to understand whether Mars could support life, whether there was water, whether there's other chemicals and nutrients that life requires, um, and not actually to detect life because we're, we're, we're making sure that we build up a complete understanding of Mars before we then again send the next spacecraft like Viking to actually look for, for life on Mars because we want to understand Mars as a whole to find those very rare and special places where there might be evidence of that life preserved on the surface of Mars for us to discover. Uh, and so, you know, what's exciting is that now all the way since 1976, we've come back almost full, cir- uh, full circle to where we've sent these satellites, we've sent these landers and rovers, including Curiosity, and we're right at the brink uh, now of returning for the first time in 50 years almost to a spacecraft that will actually look for evidence of life on Mars with much more information behind it, much more knowledge behind it, and hopefully then a much better chance of success. Right. So before we get deeper into uh, landers and rovers and and any of the missions coming up, can you first tell us the difference between uh, a flyby and a lander? Sure. Um, The very first spacecraft that JPL ever sent out were flyby missions, which means you launch it from Earth and you aim it at a planet. Uh, But then that spacecraft... uh, because of the speed that we that you need to launch it from Earth uh, to escape the gravitational pull of Earth and the Sun, the spacecraft is going quite fast by the time it actually reaches its target. And this is true for the um, Voyager missions that took pictures of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Uh, and it's true even as recent as New Horizons that took those amazing first pictures of Pluto. Uh, and... Um, and, and those spacecraft just have a, you know, usually just a few days because they're going so fast. So you're waiting years and years, and then all of a sudden you take all the pictures and all gather all the data within just, you know, 48 hours as you whiz by the planet. So that's a way to do it. Uh, the, the advantage of doing it that way is that you don't have to um, include all the capability on that spacecraft to be able to slow down and fire a big rocket engine to then get captured in the gravitational pull of the planet that you're trying to explore. So with Cassini, for example, it's a huge spacecraft. It's, you know, it's sort of the next generation from the Voyager spacecraft, but Cassini had to have, had to bring uh, an entire rocket system and fuel with it so that by the time it got to Saturn, it would not just fly by at enormous speed, but would turn backwards and fire the rocket uh, so that it would slow down enough that Saturn's own gravity would capture it and put the spacecraft into orbit. So it's a, it's a big technological step to add that capability. But of course, the advantage there is that once you're in orbit around the planet, you can study it for years, which Cassini was able to do at Saturn. Now, when you're talking about Mars, it's yet another uh, complexity, which uh, is landing. So I think the Easiest thing to do technologically is to fly by a planet, which is still, of course, very difficult. Uh, 
The next, you know, more complex thing is to to go into orbit around a planet because then you have to bring a rocket with you and you have to understand the navigation of how you get captured into a an orbit and and then you make that orbit into a circle. It's it's quite complex. But then when you're talking about landing on Mars, um, then you have to survive a flight through an atmosphere coming in at, you know, going multiple kilometers per second, enormous rates of speed, and somehow slow down to fly through that atmosphere without destroying the spacecraft. And then landing on the surface itself um, is also a very tricky process when there's no landing pads, uh, no safe areas necessarily. You have to figure out how to slow that spacecraft from you know, five or six kilometers per second to just a few meters per second as you touch down on the surface of Mars. Oh, yes. Cassini was a flyby and did get some of the most amazing pictures of Saturn. Uh, We are not in contact with Cassini anymore, right? Uh, No longer, yeah. So it was an extremely successful mission. I believe it it, uh, was launched in 1997 uh, and... um, it took a few years to get to Saturn on the way by uh, it, it did some investigation of Jupiter, which I was involved in. And that was uh, really wonderful to be part of a flyby mission like that. Um, and, uh, you know, cause all of all the excitement happens within just a few hours. Uh, and then it reached Saturn and got into orbit around Saturn. It released a probe that was supplied by the European space agency. And that probe descended into the atmosphere of Titan a moon of Saturn. And then Cassini stayed in orbit for several years, all the way until 2017, when as it was running out of fuel, uh, it was deliberately sent into the atmosphere of Saturn so that um, we would be sure that the spacecraft would never never, um, crash into moons like Titan that may, or Enceladus, another moon of Saturn, both of which may have the possibility of life. So in order to be a good, you know, good citizens and, and keep the solar system clean of our own garbage, uh, we deliberately sent Cassini into Saturn so that it would burn up and not cause a problem for any of these places that may actually have ancient life. Oh, that is such an amazing detail and story. I'm not sure how many of us were aware of that. But now that we are, it does address the uh, questions about our responsibility and values as we move forward into these missions, right? Now, uh, prior to Curiosity, there was Odyssey, there was Spirit and Opportunity. How did these missions tie into Curiosity's projects? And what were you able to take forward? Because the Curiosity design is stunning. It's nothing like we've seen before uh, with the cameras and the lasers. Sure. You know, the, um, the Mars program... 2.0, you could call it, uh, the one that started in the 1990s after the gap after Viking, uh, was designed very strategically. It was designed to be to last multiple decades and to very deliberately and carefully reapproach this question of whether life ever existed on Mars or maybe even if it exists today. Uh, and it, it was built on this realization that when we tried in 1976, we may not have understood Mars well enough to know how to ask that question and where to look on Mars to ask that question. So this Mars program 2.0 in 19, I think it started around 1999, was designed to send to first send orbiters to map the entire planet, understand its topography, understand 
the different ages of various places on the surface, uh, whether they dated from the early solar system or where they were, whether they were formed more recently to understand whether certain terrains were volcanic terrains, uh, certain terrains were maybe formed, um, very excitingly from, uh, rivers or lakes. Uh, and, and that's following up on discoveries also from the 1970s where we realized that Mars actually did have lots of evidence, does have lots of evidence for ancient liquid water. There's riverbeds on Mars. There's craters that were once filled with water. So we wanted to map all that out and build a picture of ancient Mars from those satellite maps so that we could find, you know, the handful of places on Mars where um, we could send a spacecraft to the surface and hopefully encounter one of those ancient places that once maybe was a crater filled with a lake or maybe was a riverbed. Uh, and those would be the kind of places where you might hope to find evidence of any life that took advantage of that water billions of years ago. So we first sent um, spacecraft like the Mars Global Surveyor, um, which, um, you know, all the spacecraft, of course, have cameras. That's one of the, the ways that we bring this information to our human senses very um, in a very straightforward way. Uh, but we also mapped the, the gravity of Mars, um, understood its sort of internal structure, which tells us about its, its history. Um, we, we mapped the temperatures of Mars. We learn about the environment and temperature um, uh, data can also actually reveal things like whether surfaces are volcanic or whether they're full of sand or even in some cases what minerals are on the surface. Um, we also sent the Odyssey Orbiter, which, um, which is still going today. It's the oldest satellite that we have at Mars. Um, and uh, this spacecraft also was able to, of course, have cameras, um, but map the planet for, um, for its chemistry. That's one of the things that Odyssey was able to do uh, and, and temperatures as well. Um, one of the one of the really um, wonderful missions that that has informed our understanding about Mars in a great way was one that we launched. I think it got to Mars in about 2006. It's called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and even the title kind of tells you what it's about. You know, it's a, it's a reconnaissance mission. We're we're sending this the spacecraft to explore Mars for us and do reconnaissance so that we can follow it up with missions like Curiosity. And Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter carried uh, the biggest camera and telescope that we've, I think, ever sent to another planet. So we're able to take these extremely high-resolution pictures of the surface of Mars from space. Uh, and uh, that allowed us to understand potential places where we could send landers and rovers very well uh, through these very high-res pictures, uh, but also um, to measure, uh, what, to help understand whether there were safe landing places. So with very high-res pictures and using some stereo, some 3D pictures, we could figure out uh, how rough the surface was and whether a spacecraft could land there successfully. So all these orbiters were designed to help us understand the planet and actually help us understand it from a technical point too, so that we'd be ready to successfully land uh, a, a spacecraft later. Um, as we were sending that series of orbiters, we started also sending a series of rovers and progressively building up our technology to do that. So um, even before this next era of the Mars program, we did send a, a very small rover, uh, the Sojourner rover, on a mission called Mars Pathfinder. 
which was the first time we ever drove a robot on another planet. Um, and uh, it's a six wheel rover uh, with a suspension system that was designed specifically for it at JPL. Uh, and it was about, you know, n- not much bigger than the size of a, of a computer monitor, you know, that sort of size. Um, and yet that design is something that now we've retained and built up to bigger and bigger rovers. So all the rovers that JPL have built since then have used that same six wheel design and suspension system, uh, which is very uh, good at driving over rocky uh, terrains. We followed up Pathfinder, which just lasted for about 80 days and was really just a demonstration of technology, uh, our ability to drive on another planet. We followed that up with a twin set of missions called Spirit and Opportunity, which um, are uh, rovers that are um, much smaller than a car, but uh, quite a bit bigger than the Mars Pathfinder was. Uh, And these rovers had a, a specific goal, which was to follow up some of the measurements that we took from satellites and go to places where we think there once was liquid water on the surface. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, spirit went to a crater that was thought to have once been filled with a lake and opportunity went to an area where there's a lot of, um, a, a specific mineral called hematite, uh, which is an iron min- mineral that turns into hematite when in, when it interacts with water, it kind of, it's kind of like rust. Uh, and so each of those missions was sent to follow up and with the idea of, of proving to us uh, that water actually was present for long periods of time on ancient Mars. Um, again, you know, with the, with, the, with the goal in the future of understanding whether life existed, but taking just one piece of that at the time to understand the question of water itself. Uh, and Spirit and Opportunity were wonderful missions they learned, they, you know, they taught us so much about Mars and they each did end up finding evidence that water existed for long periods of time, both, um, you know, sometimes in the way that we thought they would, but actually for each of those missions, they found water in, in ways that we were not expecting them to. Uh, and so it, it just showed us also that, um, you know, our understanding of Mars is still incomplete. Oh, yes. Opportunity in particular went way beyond and was... Uh, continuing till about 2008? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, and, and we we build all these spacecraft to last. Uh, well, let me put it this way. You know, every time we build a spacecraft from Voyager, you know, Viking, Spirit Opportunity, Curiosity, we always have a specific mission in mind for it. Uh, and that mission is, of course, very carefully planned out in advance, uh, whether it would last you know, whether, and it describes like where the spacecraft's going to go, what it's going to do, how long it will take to get that done. Uh, and in the case of Spirit and Opportunity, these were the really after Pathfinder, the first time we'd ever sent scientific uh, robots, uh, you know, with wheels, <laughs> rovers to another planet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the thought was, we, we may not know how to do that uh, very well, so we'll give them a mission that lasts about six months. And because we're not sure how long they'll survive, uh, we'll make sure that everything that we need them to do will happen in about six months. And we call that the prime mission. And any time beyond the prime mission is, is wonderful, it, but it's not time that we, um, that we count on because so many things can go wrong. And Spirit ended up lasting about... I think about six six years maybe, 
so much longer than six months, but opportunity just blew us all away uh, where it lasted, I think about 14, 15 years uh, after, you know, being designed for six months. So um, it, there's, <laughs> if you'll, if you'll permit me, there's another interesting uh, aspect to all this, which is um, the story of like how these spacecraft are powered. So spacecraft like Spirit and Opportunity have solar panels. And at the time when we built Spirit and Opportunity, the, the thought was that one of the reasons that we, we may only have them for six months is because with solar panels, they may get covered up with dust and the power will, will diminish. And on a dry planet like Mars, you don't really have you know, windshield wipers and fluids to clean the panels. So the thought was, you know, that may be what limits the life of these missions. After six months, there'll be so much dust on the solar panels that they'll stop working. When Curiosity was built, we decided we'll get around that problem by having a nuclear power source, having a power system like Viking and Voyager, which used radioactive material to last for many, many years without worrying about dust collecting on solar panels. Now, the ironic twist in all this is that uh, the, um, unexpectedly the, uh, the strength and the amount of wind on Mars was able to clean the solar panels of spirit and opportunity. And because, uh, they, they use what we now call renewable energy, um, spirit and opportunity were able to keep going for years and years and years with the solar panels, which is completely unexpected. Whereas curiosity, ironically, because it has a nuclear power source, which is immune from dust, but degrades as the radioactive material decays, we have a, a very fixed, limited life. We know that, you know, five or six years from now, we're going to run out of power and there's nothing we can do about it. So our, um, it, it, it just shows, you know, how things can, even with the best engineers in the world, you, you don't really know how to predict the future. And, and solar panels ended up being the way to have spacecraft last a very long time, whereas nuclear power source being a, ended up being a way to have a, a fixed you know, limit to your mission. It's amazing that you would have to go through both these missions to figure it out that, uh, and I think there's no other way of finding it out. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the advantage. Um, and that's, what's wonderful about, about space exploration is it's just been a continuous learning experience uh, since the 19, you know, fifties and sixties where every mission teaches you so much about, um, and it gives you more engineering challenges to, to figure out uh, and it gives you scientific questions to answer. And part of what's so exciting about being in this field is just having to answer those questions and learn from what's before you and pave the way for what's coming in the future. And getting to Curiosity with its amazing landing maneuver and 17 cameras and laser throws, it just sounds all very science fiction. <laughs> it does sound science fiction, but it, what's, what's wonderful is that it's science fact. Uh, it really, and to be honest, it's engineering uh, that we're talking about here. One, one of the, the real pleasures of my job is that even though I'm a scientist and I make, you know, what, what drives me is to make these discoveries about the other planets. I get to work every day with some of the best engineers in the entire world uh, who um, know how to design these spacecraft and these instruments to allow you know me and the other scientists to answer the questions that we have. 
there's no way you could do anything in space without um, it being built on the, f- the foundation of uh, really incredible engineering and technology. So Curiosity is an example of that. It, at the time, it was the most sophisticated spacecraft that NASA had ever built. Uh, because even though a spacecraft like Cassini was bigger uh, and in a way you know, more complica- complicated with more instruments than Curiosity has, Curios- uh, sorry, Cassini did not have to land and it did not have to drive around. So Curiosity at the time it was taking our, our biggest achievement at the time, which was building a spacecraft like Cassini. And using, you know, starting with that complexity and then adding the ability to drive around uh, and have a, a system where you could drill into rocks on another planet and deliver the powder that you drill into laboratories of the, of the quality that you'd find in, in a university, you know, laboratory, uh, but, but made small enough to put on a rover. So there's so many aspects of, of the mission that are just really, you know, to this day, um, mind-blowing to me in terms of the technology that was required. Uh, and we can talk about many of these, you know, individually if you'd like. I'll just kind of run through them quickly for now, though. I mean, we had to have technology to land a, a one-ton rover on another planet. We have never done that before. So this very um, crazy-looking system of, of landing a spacecraft uh, by flying it down with a rocket jetpack and landing it on its own wheels on the surface of Mars uh, had to be invented in order to allow Curiosity to do its mission. Uh, and then, you know, having um, a rover, uh, Spirit and Opportunity had instruments on a mast, like the cameras, it had instruments on an arm. What we added for Curiosity was having instruments in the rover body itself. So one of the reasons Curiosity is so big is because the entire front part of the rover is made of two scientific laboratories, uh, one of which is a mass spectrometer. Another one shines an X-ray beam through rock samples to figure out what minerals are there. And these are, these are very uh, complicated instruments in themselves. And then you have to put them inside of a rover and supply that material with a big drill on the end of an arm uh, and do that all without ever being able to clean anything or fix anything. Uh, you have to design it in such a way that it can be used dozens of times as you sample different rocks and analyze different samples without ever having a, a, the ability to um, go up there and, and adjust anything like you would do in, in any system like that on Earth You know, many, many times. Uh, if you're drilling into a rock, it, that's a hard thing to do on earth, you know? Uh, and so many times you'd want to adjust the drill a little bit and, and take it out, put it back in, you know, figure out what's going wrong, clean it. You can't really do any of that. Um, you know, especially not with a human. Um, but you know, other, other things, uh, on the Rover, um, the, the thing, the things I mentioned, the landing system and the ability to have this drill and the laboratories are were, were really the, the biggest challenges for us. The things that, that you mentioned, the cameras and the laser, were also challenging, but not as much. But they actually are are the kind of the, the, the fun parts of the of the mission. We as humans, we we have to have cameras. You know, we, we just can't imagine sending these spacecraft out uh, without uh, the the ability to bring our eyes with us. You know, to these other planets. So Curiosity has. Um, really wonderful cameras uh, that take um, beautiful color pictures, of course, and most of our missions 
especially the, the ones that land, have uh, 3D vision. So we, of course, have two cameras that are spaced apart, you know, kind of like your eyes are. Um, and we uh, have an instrument on top of those cameras, the one that you mentioned that has a laser. Uh, this, this one's called ChemCam or Chemistry Camera. Uh, and it's a pretty fascinating concept. It, you, you focus a laser uh, by shining it through a telescope, uh, and, and that telescope can focus the laser beam to a point on a rock about five meters away from the rover. And by the time that laser beam reaches the rock and it's, and it's focused into a spot that's smaller than one millimeter, it, uh, it vaporizes that rock. It's so much energy, it actually vaporizes the rock, creates a little cloud of plasma, like a spark. And when we look at the color of that spark in great detail with, a, with an instrument called a spectrometer that looks at every wavelength of light. And um, what that allows us to do is see the color of the spark and turn that into an understanding of the chemical elements that are in that rock. So uh, we can look at the chemistry of rocks from several meters away just by shooting this laser at various rocks around the rover. Uh, so that allows us to sample a lot more rocks than we, we could ever have the time to sample if we had to drill every single one of them. Uh, so that's the way we, you know, when we, when we roll up into a new environment with a rover, we first shoot that laser around at various targets. And if something really looks interesting and unexpected to us, maybe that's the one we'll follow up with uh, driving the rover closer to and then getting the arm and following up uh, with additional measurements. But that's so cool. And, and getting to the landing, that was something else that needed great levels of precision and uh, being bold as well, I guess. And you had to have a, a parachute to slow down the descent after its heat shield was protected and then lower down the rover from a rope with reverse thrust boosters on. And didn't y'all, I'm not sure if y'all used pedals for the landing or was that for another mission? Yeah, let's let's maybe quickly cover the system right before Curiosities, which is the the ones with the with the pedals. I think maybe you're you're mentioning. So with Spirit and Opportunity, they were smaller uh, vehicles, and what was able to be designed for them is that anytime you're entering another another atmosphere from space, whether it's coming back to Earth, like like the Apollo missions or SpaceX missions or landing on Mars with an atmosphere, you have to enclose the spacecraft in a capsule. And that capsule has a heat shield on the front of it. And so as you come into that atmosphere, you know, screaming along, going very fast, and you encounter the atmosphere, the spacecraft heats up, that heat shield ab absorbs and gets rid of all that heat. And then once you're in the atmosphere, you can open up that capsule and let out the spacecraft. And with Spirit and Opportunity, uh, the spacecraft uh, came out went down to the surface uh, and as they were approaching the surface and sensed that they were just um, a few meters above the surface, uh, a, a whole series of airbags inflated that basically protected the spacecraft in a giant bubble consisting of, a, of maybe like a dozen individual airbags. And the, the whole system, you know, as, as I'm sure people have seen, you know, famously bounced along the surface of Mars uh, in order to uh, slow it down. And once, once it came to rest, the airbags deflated, and then the spacecraft, which was enclosed in this um, you know, triangular uh, you know, pyramid-shaped structure, the petals of that pyramid opened up and the rover drove out. That you know, was considered the craziest um, 
way to land. Oh yeah, the first the first time I saw that, I was wondering seriously, is this true? This is what actually happened on Mars. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know that again. That's that's one of the really wonderful parts of the job is to be around these creative engineers who who don't. You know, it's sometimes you you have you you can't let your preconceived ideas steer you to something that isn't really the right solution. Sometimes you have to think, you know, as we say, you know, think outside the box. I guess because these airbags bouncing on Mars was just uh, so raw. You'd expect jetpacks and, and hi-fi stuff, but not bouncing bags. And, and was this plan A or plan B? I, right. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, it, it just comes down to what what is the best way to land, uh, given the circumstances that Mars has, and, and what's the most reliable way, what's the safest way. And something like airbags is actually, in a way, a much simpler system than trying to fire a rocket and keeping, you know, um, the, the spacecraft stable while you're firing a rocket and all these things. Just letting it bounce in airbags is actually a pretty elegant solution to that problem. Now, with Curiosity, we first studied the idea of airbags, but because Curiosity is about five times as massive as the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, it just didn't scale. The, the, the airbags would have to be so big that they would have weighed more than the rover itself. Uh, so then we tried uh, whether we could land Curiosity on um, a big platform uh, that would, you know, come down to the surface firing rockets and then you land a platform and you drive the rover off of it. Uh, but I think the weight being one ton would have been an issue, right? Yes. That's right. I mean, it was the weight of the of the rover that prevented us from using airbags because uh, the airbags would have had to be so big. Um, and then, fi- you know, then it was just determined that, like, why would you land an entire platform or enclose the rover in anything? Because you're just then having to bring all that extra weight with you. So the the solution that was thought of was let's land the rover on its own wheels. Let's use the rover's wheels uh, as its landing gear. Uh, and then the question became, well, how do you then lower the rover down to the surface? And and the idea of this, um, what we call the, the sky crane, uh, was invented, where instead of having a platform under the rover or surrounding the rover, you attach something to the top of the rover that has rocket engines and a very small skeleton, you know, lightweight frame that um, that fires rockets and flies the rover down about the last two kilometers of the atmosphere slowing it down. And then, <laughs> then you had to think of like, what happens when you actually get near the surface, uh, which was the really um, amazing part to me, where the rover is actually lowered down from this, um, this rocket jet pack it, it was wearing for the past two kilometers. Uh, that all stops, you know, moving forward about a hundred feet off the ground and the rover gets lowered down on a rope and lands on its own wheels while the rockets are still hovering above it. Um, very similar. It was based a lot on the design of like a helicopter that you might see on TV, you know, like lowering down a, 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 a you know, to rescue someone. A helicopter hovers and lowers a, lowers somebody on a rope to, to rescue somebody from the ground. That's the idea, except we have to use rockets instead of a helicopter. And the velocity at which it would have entered meant you would have limited time, I guess, maybe five or six minutes 
uh, to get the speed down first before you could do what you just said. Yes. Uh, and, and while the, uh, you do have about seven minutes uh, from the time you enter the atmosphere going at about six kilometers per second uh, to then get the speed all the way down to about one meter per second when you actually touch down. Another part of the technology of Curiosity's landing that I think is really fascinating is that, you know, as, as many spacecraft have to do, you, you're enclosed in a capsule uh, first as you go from space and you enter another atmosphere. And this capsule protects the spacecraft from the initial heat that's generated when you encounter an atmosphere. So there's a heat shield that protects the spacecraft. And you're going at an enormous uh, rate of speed, six kilometers per second. Uh, once Curiosity entered the atmosphere, though, uh, one thing that I think is, is really fascinating is that that capsule for Curiosity was actually turned into a wing, uh, like an air, aircraft wing, by changing the angle of attack, the, the, um, the direction that that capsule is pointed, slightly um, pitching it up a little bit. It was able to generate some lift and help slow Curiosity down, even while it was still enclosed in this capsule. So we actually flew the spacecraft through the upper atmosphere of Mars on a series of banking turns that um, slowed the spacecraft down and generated enough lift to keep it from um, getting any closer to the surface. So it went for about 100 kilometers uh, of, of distance, flying basically at, the, at a level height in the atmosphere, uh, flying like a wing. And only then did it slow down enough where it, it kind of pitched over, started going more directly down toward the surface, and then a parachute uh, came out and slowed it down even further. Once that parachute slowed it down, the parachute was cut off. And then finally the capsule opened up uh, and the rover itself uh, was released with this rocket jet pack on it that was um, designed to fly the rover in a, in a powered way with rockets firing down the last two kilometers from the surface. So this long series of events going from the heat shield entering the atmosphere, flying it like a wing for 100 kilometers of distance, and then um, uh, fl- uh, using a parachute to slow it down, and then this rocket jetpack and lowering the rover down at the last you know, 100 feet or so um, down to the surface, all was, this, um, all was required to safely land Curiosity. And of course, you know, we can't do anything on Earth while this is happening because we're so far away that the signals take, you know, several minutes, seven minutes in the case of Curiosity to get from Mars to Earth. So all this is pre-programmed on board the rover and the rover has to uh, deploy all these systems and, and time everything perfectly itself without any help from us. Absolutely stunning. Really stunning. And all through this time, uh, when or how is altitude measured? as I think we're talking about time here, right? Uh, but when does the rover know how far it is from ground? Yeah, you know, some things are timed uh, based on our best understanding from simulations of how long things would take. Other things are directly sensed. So the spacecraft on board has accelerometers, so it can, it can actually sense the gravitational pull of the planet. It can sense the... Um, the thickness of the atmosphere that it's encountering by how much it's being decelerated by the atmosphere itself. So that helps it understand how deep it is in the atmosphere based on how much pressure it's getting from the atmosphere as it's, as it's flying, uh, as it's descending. Once the heat shield comes off though, and the rover is exposed, uh, 
to to the air of the planet, there was a radar that was built into the um, in, into the jetpack that the rover's wearing. Part of that, uh, including which includes the rockets that fired, part of it also is a radar system that then bounced radio waves off the surface of Mars to very precisely measure the altitude. So in that last two kilometers, as it's descending and firing rockets, it used that radar the entire time to very accurately measure its distance above Mars, figure out when it was in that very final stage where it could lower the rover down on the ropes. Uh, And then once the rover sensed the touchdown, um, those ropes were cut and the jetpack then flew off and, and crashed, you know, 500 meters away. And then the rover was left on the surface of Mars. Considering the atmosphere on Mars is about 80 to 90 times thinner than that on Earth, the speed on its final stage uh, would you have calculated that as i'm not sure there's no other way you could uh, test those conditions uh, here on earth it's true i mean there's certain things we can test in pieces on earth we can uh, we can put a parachute into a wind tunnel and simulate the forces it would have in the mars environment we can test the radar by itself um, the thing we can't ever do on earth is test the entire system in in a complete uh, test run because there's nowhere on earth that has the thin atmosphere and the low gravity that Mars has. So every piece of that landing system was tested independently. And then the entire system was tested virtually through computer simulations. But the first time it ever actually performed, uh, it, all, all of its steps was when it actually was landing on Mars. And, you know, the, the ability we have to simulate it is limited by our incomplete understanding of Mars itself. So as we were designing uh, this whole landing system, one of my jobs was to give the engineers an, a sense of what the Martian atmosphere was like. You know, what, what was its thickness? How fast were the winds blowing? What were the temperatures? You know, at what level were the winds blowing and in what direction were they blowing? And all these things are known to some level, but not very precisely. So the engineering of that landing system had to be designed to be surprised as well. It had to be resilient enough to encounter winds blowing in the opposite direction from what was expected or the atmospheric pressure to be much lower or much higher than what was expected and respond to that safely. Uh, So uh, that's the other challenge. Not only is it hard to land on another planet with an atmosphere, but it's even harder when you don't really understand that atmosphere well enough. And the Mars camera imager. Uh, how important was that for landing? It, it it produced some great images. So for Curiosity, it wasn't used to help land the spacecraft. It was really more of a test of a camera system that could uh, that could continuously record video during the landing, uh, as well as something that we could use for the public to give um, everyone around the world a sense of what it's like to land on Mars. So that video that it produced is wonderful for that aspect. But for Perseverance, uh, what, um, what Perseverance will do is actually use the camera in real time as the spacecraft is landing to detect whether it's about to reach an area that's maybe a little less safe for landing and be able to, at the last minute, steer away from that area and land somewhere that's safer. Uh, speaking about collecting data prior to landing, is Maven doing something similar to... Uh, for the Perseverance landing, is it preparing this data or in some way will be supporting the Perseverance mission? 
So the spacecraft, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that we talked about earlier the, from 2006 is still going now. And it's, it's really the main spacecraft that's used to help all the various landers that have landed since then. So it has this large telescope that takes these very detailed pictures of the surface. It has an, uh, a, an instrument that measures the temperatures of the atmosphere so that we can understand the, uh, the density and temperatures in, in the atmosphere. And those data sets are the ones that are used to make sure that the spacecraft can land successfully. Uh, other spacecraft like Odyssey and Maven do help, but they really aren't designed to produce those data sets. Um, so, you know, the MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, has um, enabled now, you know, I, I don't even know how many, but, but a number of different spacecraft to successfully make it to Mars. So it's been a wonderful mission. One very important and uh, interesting process you touched on earlier was uh, the laser and how it used to collect rock data. Can we just go back to that as I think uh, uh, I find it very interesting. I'm sure my listeners would want to hear a little bit more about that as well. You know, we have a series of steps that we do every time we drive the rover to a new location. Um, we use, again, we use these images from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, even daily as we're doing the mission on the, on the surface, because using these images, we can see that, you know, over here, it looks like there's a, a unique shape of a mountain range, or over here is maybe where um, a lake once uh, existed. And so we drive the rover to each of these spots. And then as we drive the rover to a new area, we go through a series of steps where we first image it with our color cameras and so our, our geologists can understand uh, and, and begin to figure out what the area really means. Uh, and then we use the laser that you mentioned to do our first chemical sampling of it. So we fire the laser at, you know, three or four or five different places. And every time we fire the laser, it shoots out pulses of light. Those pulses of light are focused very um, finely on a, on a rock with so much energy that they vaporize the rock and cause this little spark. And this, the color of that spark, we, we look at with a spectrometer, every wavelength of light in that spark. And the patterns that um, are emitted by that spark, whether there's more green or more red or more ultraviolet light, actually are, are diagnostic. They tell you what chemicals and minerals are in that rock. And this is all known from experiments that are done on Earth in laboratories. And it's something that you even learn in a chemistry class in, in school where you might take a, a spoonful of a particular substance and put it in a flame. And the color that is produced while that material is in a flame uh, is, uh, is related to what substance was, was put in the flame. And it's the same kind of thing we use on Mars. And so once we shoot those areas and, um, and see what is around us. Then we'll go to the next step of deploying the arm and putting our, our next set of instruments uh, on that rock or on that patch of soil to, to explore it further. And if that uh, data set also is very interesting, only then will we go through the process of taking out the drill and drilling a hole or collecting a scoop of the material and analyzing it in the labs. And we, we use these steps because Drilling and analyzing a sample takes about a month. So we can't do it very often. We have to use all our other instruments first to find the best areas. And only then will we take the month-long um, experiment uh, to, to actually study what the material is. 
in detail. I'm sorry, but but I was very distracted in school uh, for other reasons, so so I missed that. But <laughs> I, but I to get it. back to to get back to the landing, uh, how did you all come up with the Gale Crater as the landing site? Because I guess that would have been a pond in the past, right? And uh, what was so special about this landing site that was selected? It, it's a very important question because you can spend you know, so many years designing uh, the, the scientific instruments and coming up with this incredible rover and the landing system that's required. But if you don't send it to the right place, uh, you may not discover what you're after. And so we spent several years, about five years, going through all the data from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and other orbiters as well, and scouring the surface of Mars for the places that we thought would best tell us whether um, the conditions that could support life you know, ever were present on Mars. So obviously, we, we started with water. We looked for places where um, water was thought to have existed in the past on Mars, uh, whether it's in streams or deltas or lakes or oceans. Uh, and we then also looked for places that were quite old because we think that the first billion years of Mars history was much more promising for life than the present time. So we looked for evidence that told us that these are places that had water about three and a half billion years ago. The next thing we did was look for places where the geology would capture a record of that evidence. There's not many places on Earth where you can find rocks that are as old as three and a half billion years uh, old uh, because other geological processes come and erase that evidence. And on Mars, it's the same thing. Do you want to find those places that are that old and that actually retain that record that you can read today? And one of the ways that geology can do that is by um, what's called sedimentary rock, a rock that forms as um, mud and silt and gravel are moved around by water and collect in certain areas and form big stacks of layered rocks. And if these layered rocks survive over time, every layer kind of retains a story of what was happening at the time three billion years ago. Uh, so we found a site that's very special called Gale Crater, where it once was an empty big crater, a big hole in the ground. But over time, streams of water filled in the bottom of that crater with layers of mud. And those layers are still there today. And so we thought that we could send a rover there, drive up those layers that are now in the shape of a mountain. And as the rover encountered each layer, it would be a record of a different period of time from 3 billion years ago that we could ask with our experiments, you know, was there water here? Was there organic materials, carbon materials? Were there other chemicals that life would require? And overall, you know, did the environment that's captured in this layer of rock represent an environment that could have supported life? Uh, and so that's what we've been doing for eight years is slowly climbing layer by layer and asking at every layer, you know, does, does this layer, did it form under conditions that would have also supported life? And Mount Sharp, which is the biggest mount at the Gale Crater there, uh, was that the reason that Curiosity was stuck for some time? Uh so Curiosity, fortunately, has never been uh, stuck. 
we've had our share of problems, which I'll talk about in a second. But um, the the Spirit and Opportunity missions each had trouble um, with getting stuck. And just like we talked about, you know, where we don't quite understand the atmosphere well enough to um, predict how well we'll land, we also don't understand the surface well enough to predict how how safe the rovers will be as they drive. And so with Spirit and Opportunity, we did our best every day to make sure that the rover would drive over safe materials and not get into trouble. But there was one instance with Spirit, for example, where it was driving along on material that looked just like normal sand and gravel without any concern. But just under that layer of sand and gravel, there was um, there was a different kind of material that we couldn't see with the cameras because it was buried. But once the wheels dug into that and encountered that, it was very fine material, almost like uh, like flour, uh, baking flour, and and the wheels could not get any traction and they just dug deeper and deeper and it, and it got the, the spirit spacecraft stuck. The opportunity spacecraft also got stuck in thick sand uh, dunes. So, you know, that's what we've been trying to avoid very carefully as one mission, you know, you learn from the one before you. Uh, we, so, so far we have not gotten stuck, but um, we've had, you know, our own issues with um, our computer has given us problems now and then. Uh, fortunately, we've recovered and then our wheels have um, deteriorated more quickly than we hoped. So there's some holes in our wheels from sharp rocks on Mars. But, you know, we're, we're, we've been able to overcome that as well. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what makes these missions exciting, though. You're always overcoming challenges and, um, and finding ways to keep going. And that must be so frustrating for you guys. If something like that happens, just sitting in a car on Earth and being stuck in the sand is a challenge, in spite of you being in the seat of the car and in control of that spot and the situation. But I can just imagine when something like this is happening on another planet. It, it is frustrating. And it, it, it's frustrating partly because of this feeling of helplessness, because you are separated by a hundred million miles, you know, from, from the Rover. And, and, and because of that, you're also limited in your senses. You can only see so much, you know, you, the first thing you do on earth is, is put your head down under the car and, and maybe dig around the wheels and see what's going on. And with these Rovers on Mars, you're really limited in what you can see and what you can sense. And so you just have to, um, uh, be as creative as possible to try to, to rescue the Rover. And one of the things that they did with spirit was um, they built an entire uh, simulated environment at JPL where they, they took a, a room at JPL and they filled it with gravel and sand and this very fine flower like material. And they put an engineering model of Rover in uh, of spirit in that um, environment and they got it stuck just like the one on Mars was stuck uh, and then they tested on Earth many different ways of trying to free the rover. And unfortunately, with Spirit, they never were able to free it. Uh, and that's one of the things that led to its um, its end in 2010. Uh, but with Opportunity, they were able to free it from the sand that it got stuck in. And, and of course, it continued all the way until two years ago. Oh, that's a, that's a great insight. I can see it playing out uh, on an upcoming movie as we speak. Uh, we, were, we were getting to water on Mars now and uh, Curiosity also found organic molecules uh, preserved in some of the rock samples. 
that could have supported life. So what do you think about the possibility of ancient life once existing there on Mars? So, you know, as you know, Curiosity's mission was to figure out if the conditions ever were present on Mars that could support life. So we, we did not have the goal of finding life itself. We had the goal of advancing from the discoveries of water, from spirit and opportunity, and adding everything else that life requires. So was there water? Were there carbon-containing molecules that life could use to build itself from? Were there nutrients for life in the chemistry were there any things in the environment that would have prevented life, like toxic substances or too much radiation? So that's what Curiosity was about. And we went to this site, Gale Crater, where we felt strongly that there was evidence of water from three billion years ago. Uh, and there were all these rock layers to explore, and, and which represented different periods of Martian history that we could ask those questions. And really, you know, to me, everything that Curiosity has found has only made the case stronger that Mars uh, was a place that would have been very friendly to life if life ever existed three and a half billion years ago. It, it, it turns out that back then, Mars was a very you know, Earth-like planet. There was a thicker atmosphere. It was probably warmer. There was probably rain falling and uh, streams flowing down the side of Gale Crater. These streams you know, carried mud into the crater, into a lake, and formed these layers that we detected. And within these lakes, there was carbon molecules. Uh, there was other, there was nitrogen and sulfur and phosphorus and oxygen and all these elements that life requires. It would have been a great place to, uh, for, for life to evolve and survive. But at this point, we still don't know whether that actually ever happened. And that's what per perseverance is of course designed to figure out. But you know, the more I look at what we found with curiosity, it only makes me think um, more strongly that, that life was given a wonderful chance to exist on Mars. And I, I, you know, it makes me more curious than ever whether life ever was able to take that opportunity. Well, the obvious next question would be how confident are we that there is no life there currently? So we are Quite confident that there's nothing obvious. I was, I was, I was hoping you'd give me another answer. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's disappointing in in some ways, but but not completely. And and here's why. You know, so we we do believe that the window for life on Mars probably was not that long. It probably was just a few hundred million years in its early history, three or four billion years ago. And in that time, life on Earth never really got beyond a very basic stage. You know, most of the time in Earth's history, life consisted of only microbes. And it wasn't until, you know, very recent times, hundreds of millions of years ago, where more complex forms of life really took off. So if Mars never got to that phase and, and life existed in the form of microbes, uh, we likely would not have found it yet, you know, with all the spacecraft that we've sent to Mars. Uh, we may have not looked in the right places or brought the right tools in the Viking time frame. And since then, we haven't directly looked because we've been learning more and more about Mars and, and where to do this experiment. So, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, we're, we've finally kind of come all the way back to where we were in 1976, but much more informed, much more educated so that we could go 
and actually look directly for signs of ancient life. Now it's, it's extremely hard. Um, if you were to pick up a rock on earth from three and a half billion years ago, and we know that earth was teeming with life back then, you can take that rock into a laboratory and use the best labs on earth and still have a hard time convincing yourself that you can prove that there was life, you know, evidence of life contained in that old rock. And so how much harder is it to do, you know, when you're sending just a few experiments on a rover to another planet, uh, it, microbes living billions of years ago just don't leave very clear fossils behind not like a dinosaur that has bones and you know a much bigger body when you're talking about looking for microbes that were living three billion years ago it's it's very tough to prove that life was there uh, which is why we took this very careful approach over the last few decades to to find the very best places to look and then also why we're hoping to bring rocks from Mars back to Earth. So once again, we can use the very best laboratories all over the planet to do this um, very challenging you know, study to look at these ancient rocks and definitively show whether there was life or not. Uh, Ashwin, you mentioned a, a, a very small window for life on Mars. You, you were talking about that. Did Jupiter have something to do with this as... Uh, it did protect the Earth from a lot of early asteroid impacts compared to the impacts that would have happened on Mars. That that may have played some role, uh, and I, I'm not really an expert on that. I think what's more important for the history of Mars is uh, how the planet evolved relative to Earth. So Earth is a larger planet than Mars, and because it's larger, uh, it has more volume relative to its area. Uh, so the larger a, a planet is, the, the, the volume of it is, is, great, you know, is greater than the area, which means it cools off more, more slowly. So Earth retained a lot more heat later in its history than Mars did. And that's why we still have plate tectonics today and lots of volcanoes going off. Earth is still getting rid of that initial heat that it formed with and that all its materials inside are creating uh, whereas Mars, being a smaller planet, had relatively more area to get rid of that internal heat from its volume, and it cooled off m more quickly. So Mars never went through the stage where Earth is now with plate tectonics and, and releasing all that heat. It, its crust cooled and thickened, uh, which, um, which uh, led to another consequence, which is kind of fascinating, where um, once... Uh, Mars cooled to a certain point, it lost its ability to generate a magnetic field. Uh, Earth has, of course, a magnetic field, which is generated from the movement of molten rock uh, underneath the ground. When Mars cooled quickly, uh, it lost its ability to generate its own magnetic field and therefore led to, uh, it lost its ability to protect itself from things like the solar wind, all these particles that are shooting off of the sun, um, which Earth is shielded from by the virtue of magnetic field. Now, I'm walking through a number of steps here, but stay with me. <laughs> so you cool the planet quickly, you lose the magnetic field, you lose your ability to shield from the solar wind. So what happens? The solar wind hits the atmosphere directly and begins stripping away the atmosphere. So in maybe the first billion, billion and a half years of Mars history, 
that thicker atmosphere that allowed all that water to exist in the early part of the history was stripped away. And once the atmosphere became thin, it became cold, and it became hard for water to ever be stable anymore in the form of lakes and rivers or oceans. And so that led to where Mars is today, a very dry planet, a very cold planet, all the water being frozen. And um, so that really is what limited that window of, of possibility of life um, is the fact that it only had that thicker and, and wetter atmosphere for a limited amount of time. What about uh, under the surface? Is, is there a possibility of life there? Uh, I think it's possible that life could be present even today under the surface. What, uh, there, I mean, there's a few thoughts, and these are all fairly speculative, but um, you know, life requires some complex natural chemistry to get started. You know, it's thought that life originated on the surface of Earth. Uh, where um, lots of chemicals were being mixed around and you and you ended up with conditions that allowed the complex molecules of life to first form. So it's not clear that life could originate underground um, because maybe that, that variety of chemistry isn't there for, for life to make use of. But say life started on Mars at the surface and then once Mars cooled off and froze – it may have had to recede further and further underground to stay with the conditions that were still warm and wet. And so maybe now life is only deep down on Mars and uh, it, it's getting deeper as, as every year goes by, as Mars continues to cool. If that's the case, it would be very hard for us to ever find it, I think, because you'd have to drill quite a deep way down on Mars, you know, so maybe quite a while from now when we have heavy machinery on Mars, we could find that, uh, which is, you know, which is, which is disappointing because it could be a place where life could even exist today. But it's also the reason why missions like Curiosity and Perseverance are focusing on past life uh, when it would have been at the surface. So are you saying even today, that there could be some form of life below the surface on Mars. Is that what you're saying? Because that's I think, interesting. Uh, yes, that, I, I, that is what I'm saying. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, I, hopefully someday someone will know, but I, in, in my lifetime, I'm not sure we'll ever get uh, a drill up on Mars that could drill a kilometer below the surface. That, that, that We have a long way to go before we can do that. And Ashwin, if we do plan settlements on Mars... How do we tackle what you explained earlier, the lack of uh, a magnetic field or the effects of solar winds? Yeah, it, I, it would be quite difficult to think about um, restarting Mars' magnetic field. Uh, so we're probably stuck in the situation where the solar wind continues to directly hit Mars' atmosphere. Um, and the radiation makes it, you know, even down to the surface where it can harm astronauts. So part of the challenge in settling, um, you know, or, or having a colony on Mars will be to create shelters that protect uh, humans from the radiation from space and from the sun uh, and protect humans from the thin atmosphere. So, you know, I, I suspect that, um, you know, there, there are ideas, of course, of terraforming Mars, which... I think is I was is, actually coming to that next. Yeah, but well beyond the kind of what we can do. 
so I think we have to at least start with the idea of, of enclosed spaces, you know, shelters that, um, that create a thicker atmosphere and, and protect astronauts from all the radiation. So since we actually got there, why don't you let our listeners know a little bit more about uh, terraforming? I think that's an interesting concept as well. Sure. I mean, terraforming has been something that's been talked about, especially in, in science fiction for you know many years. The idea that you could take a planet like Mars that currently has a thin atmosphere and has only carbon dioxide and a number of other factors that make it impossible for humans to live there now uh, without any protection. And you could turn that planet back into an Earth-like planet. And that's what terraforming uh, generally is. You know, so there's ideas about how you, maybe you, you uh, re-thicken the atmosphere of Mars and you remake it into an oxygen atmosphere so we could breathe. Uh, and you um, have vegetation once again all over the surface of Mars. And these are all fascinating ideas that, that humans, as small as we are, could reshape an entire planet. Um, and, you know, theoretically, I think there's no reason why it's impossible. It's just uh, the scale of what would be required is something that, you know, would be um, unlike anything we've ever done. It's it's funny we talk about terraforming another planet when what we are doing here on Earth is, is just the opposite. But uh, that's a discussion for a, another episode. Coming back to curiosity, uh, what is the future now, Ashwin? Uh, what do you personally like to see happening from here on with uh, the Curiosity mission? Fortunately, now after almost eight years, we've accomplished nearly everything we set out to do. So I feel very good about that, you know, and I want the mission to continue. I think the the spacecraft is in excellent health relative to being eight years old. So I certainly don't want it to end, but if it were to end, I think curiosity already has an incredible legacy, which I'm, you know, very proud of and represents a lot of incredible work by all the engineers and scientists that we have shown really definitively that, Mars was a place that could have supported life. All the conditions were there three and a half billion years ago. There were, you know, lakes that persisted for millions or tens of millions of years. And those lakes had fresh water. It, it, it was a kind of water that life can use, not too acidic, not too salty. The water also had other nutrients that life requires, nitrogen and oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur. It also had, uh, very importantly, had indigenous carbon, it, it had carbon that was formed that, that comes from the Martian environment. We didn't bring it, um, you know, we found it there. And those carbon molecules uh, would have served as uh, building blocks of life. It, they, in fact, they may even be evidence of life, but with our technology on Curiosity, we, we can't determine that. So Curiosity already has an incredible legacy in it, and it did exactly what it was designed to do, which was to show that Mars... Uh, what will to test whether Mars ever was habitable. And we found that the answer was yes. What we hope to do in the next few years uh, as Curiosity continues climbing the mountain is that we'll end up reaching uh, a place that uh, we think might represent the end of that habitable era. So the, the mountain in Gale Crater, Mount Sharp, is, is a fairly tall mountain. It's five kilometers high. 
So it's the geology that's recorded in that mountain represents a, a big span of time, hundreds of millions of years. And the lower part of the mountain that we've explored so far, we think all formed in a series of lakes uh, where, that represent habitable environments. But the upper part of the mountain looks to become a lot more salty. There's minerals that, we, that are called sulfate minerals that exist there, maybe more acidic and maybe more dry conditions. So once we reach that upper level and we can test whether the conditions really drastically changed, we may be able to say something about uh, the end of the period of Mars when it was most uh, conducive to life. And I think that would be really a, a wonderful final accomplishment for the for the mission, which is to have both shown that Mars was much more Earth-like and habitable than we ever could have imagined, and also be able to say, and it lasted, you know, for this particular period of time. And that will set us up for future exploration and looking for signs of life. One of the curiosity findings that got me really excited uh, was the presence of active uh, methane uh, in the Mars atmosphere where, I mean, where is that coming from? It just throws up more questions. <laughs> you said it exactly right. It throws up more questions. Um, just before Curiosity launched, there were telescopic observations from Earth and observations from a European spacecraft at Mars that hinted at the presence of methane on Mars. Uh, and not only methane, but uh, methane that was variable. That was completely unexpected. Uh, methane, based on our understanding of the chemistry of the atmosphere, first of all, just shouldn't be there. It quickly is, uh, is destroyed. And it shouldn't be varying either because it... It's destroyed over a period of about a, a few hundred years, which means that it, it, it should be kind of a, a very slowly changing amount of methane, um, which eventually would be lost very quickly in a few hundred years. But these, these observations showed that it would, it would come and go with the seasons, which of course you know, throws up a lot of questions about whether it has anything to do with present day life. We were able to quickly add on another sensor to the Curiosity mission, which directly measures methane from the surface of Mars. And we landed Curiosity and we deployed that uh, experiment for the first time. And we found, we basically couldn't detect any methane. So that was our first surprise, that we saw nothing like the levels that were reported from these earlier telescopic observations. After we continued measuring for a number of years and refined our techniques so that we could measure even more sensitive, uh, sensitively and, and smaller and smaller amounts of methane, all of a sudden we started seeing it. And now that we've been measuring it for eight years, we've actually seen a repeatable seasonal cycle, just you know similar to what was predicted by those early observations, but at a much smaller amount. So we see what we're able to measure is that one out of every billion molecules in the atmosphere uh, is, is a methane molecule. Uh, and that even that tiny amount varies uh, and it gets, it increases in the summer and decreases in the winter. Um, so it's, it's very intriguing. We, we think that there could be natural reasons uh, why methane would be produced underground and vary in the way that it does. And we have some explanations that we've proposed for that. Uh, but we also cannot exclude anything that has to do with present day life. We simply cannot tell the difference with our payload. 
but it is important that we're able to show that it's there. Oh, that's a very interesting discovery. And I think we should be uh, following up a little bit more on that as we get more information. I think that's going to be very interesting. And Ashwin, we've been hearing a lot about the Curiosity summer trip over the last uh, few days. Could you explain what exactly is the, the purpose behind this summer trip or, or give us a little bit of inside information on that? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 what we call our summer road trip is um, yeah. it, it has to do with what we were just talking about in terms of the next steps for curiosity. We, we are just about at that transition from uh, the rocks that go from these um, environments we think, you know, for, where, where there was a lot of lakes to these sulfate minerals that are currently just above where the rover is. But before we can reach that transition to the sulfate minerals, we actually have to drive around a huge patch of sand, a big dune field on Mars. And so there's about um, two or three months of driving that we have to do before we can even turn and head back directly uphill to the next layer. And so we decided that um, we're just going to try to drive as fast as we can. So we're kind of calling it our summer road trip while we're doing it. Uh, which which means that we we look a little less carefully at the ground than we used to. Um, we don't stop as much, and we just kind of um, go as fast as we can because we we really want to get to that sulfate rich area uh, while the mission is still healthy. And how fast is fast? Yeah, it, uh, generally it's extremely slow by the standards we're used to in driving cars around. Uh, we drive at our fastest. We drive. Uh, up to about 150 meters in a day. So over the span of a couple hours as we drive, we'll get about 150 meters of distance. Um, But more typically, we only drive about 10 or 20 meters per day because we like to stop frequently and look for any changes that are occurring in the chemistry of the rocks, for example. But for this summer road trip, we're telling the engineers, drive as long as you possibly can on any given day and in the past few weeks, we've had a, a number of drives that have been at 100 meters each. Wow, that's interesting. And uh, you, have, you have a big launch coming up with Perseverance. How are you uh, involved in that mission or are you involved in that mission? So my job as the project scientist for Curiosity is a, is a full-time job plus. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've made a decision to stick with Curiosity. There's a lot of my colleagues who are um, the right people to be involved with Perseverance, but you really can't do everything. And I, I, I've you know, fallen in love with this mission, Curiosity, and still very excited for what it can do in the next few years. So I've decided to stay full-time on this mission. But of course, as a planetary scientist and someone who's part of this exploration of Mars, uh, seeing the next step, the follow-up to Curiosity, about to reach Mars is extremely exciting. And this is still part of that initial plan that we talked about that started in the late 1990s, where you map the planet and you find these areas to send missions that can look for signs of life. And you start by looking for water and then you look for conditions of habitability, which we did with Curiosity. And then you send the mission that can actually directly detect signs of ancient life. And that's what perseverance is. So, you know, it's a it's an extremely exciting time. I mean, we could have in the next 10, 20 years, we might actually have an answer, uh, a definitive, reliable answer about whether life ever ever existed on the surface of Mars in, in the ancient past. 
Perseverance has two chances of finding evidence of that life. One is with its own instruments. So it's going to drive around. It looks a lot like Curiosity, and its mission will be about the same pace as Curiosity, the same kind of driving and and sampling. Uh, but it has different instruments, and some of those instruments are capable of looking for patterns in the chemistry, patterns in the mineralogy, uh, ways that the rocks have formed that are that that can tell you that life was involved in creating those patterns. So one of the ways you can detect these ancient microbes because they don't leave fossils behind is by looking by how they rearrange the chemistry and the mineralogy of rocks. So you have to bring very sophisticated instruments to Mars to do that, but that's what curiosity ha- uh, that's what a perseverance has. Now, if that's not enough, uh, if if the signs of life are so faint that perseverance is not capable of finding them, it will collect, you know, either way it's going to collect samples that it studies and seal them up into tubes and leave those sample tubes on Mars for a future mission to come collect and bring back to Earth. And once we bring those cores of rock that are taken from, again, you know, the best places on Mars that we think might have once had life, we bring those very carefully collected samples back to Earth, we divide them up, send them to laboratories all over the Earth for the most detailed analysis that we can do. Um, and, and we even save some for the future for, for knowing that technology will get better 50 years from now. Uh, we can ask the question, you know, is there any evidence of life in these rocks? And uh, I, I'm not going to predict what we'll find, but I, I do think we're coming to a moment where, uh, where we have the chance of either definitively finding life or definitively not finding it. And so this question that we've been asking not only for, you know, 50 years since Viking, but really for hundreds of years, you know, as we ask whether there's any life in the solar system besides earth, we might actually be able to have a good shot of answering um, very soon. And what about the NASA helicopter is because that is really cool and sci-fi. I think right. it could be the future of, of explorations. Uh, and I must say, it looks very science fiction. It does. You know, and you can think of um, you can think of the helicopter, which I think is called Ingenuity, uh, as being similar to the Sojourner rover that we talked about. This, this little rover, which was our first time we ever drove a, a robot around on another planet. And it only lasted for, for a, a few months and it didn't really, uh, you know, it wasn't really designed to, to do a whole lot of science or anything. It, its purpose was to just give our, give, a, give ourselves, give our engineers the first ability to try it out, to demonstrate that it's possible. And we did that with a Rover and look where it's led. It's led to spirit and opportunity and curiosity and perseverance. And now we're doing it with a helicopter. So this helicopter mission is a, is, is a, a, again, a, a really a, a demonstration just to show that it's possible and to learn from it. And then it, it's not going to do a whole lot. It's only going to last a couple of months, but how exciting will it be to see something fly on another planet and to think about what it's going to open up now over the next few decades, where maybe we'll stop sending rovers and future missions will be bigger and bigger aircraft because now you can't, now you're not limited to just one landing site, but maybe you could explore a lot more of the planet if you have the same kind of payloads that Curiosity does, 
but on a helicopter where you could fly a hundred kilometers away and then another hundred kilometers away and explore more and more of Mars. Oh yes. Uh, a curiosity hybrid with a helicopter uh, would be perfect. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that's the reason you want to, um, to, to try out these uh, different ways of, of mobility is you just want more and more access to Mars. And with rovers, you're limited because there aren't any roads on Mars and there are going to be places where as good as they are, rovers just can't drive. But a helicopter allows you to, um, uh, to overcome that. Uh, not only, you know, even, even just within Gale Crater, we could go to a lot more places if we were able to just jump up in the air and move to a different site and not have to drive over a big obstacle. Um, but then when you think about uh, a mission that could explore Gale Crater and then a year later, explore a whole different part of Mars, and then a year later, explore yet another different part of Mars, then you're really multiplying what we're going to learn about Mars. I guess also when we look at these huge space missions, uh, we need to be aware that it takes a lot of effort, passion, commitment. And I think we've been through about 56 missions to Mars so far, out of which just 26 have been successful. Uh, so the ones that are successful need to be celebrated and recognized two times more than what we are actually doing. <laughs> that's, yeah, I like that. That's, that's a very good way of putting it. It's, we're fortunately learning uh, a lot more about how to land on Mars. It's definitely not routine, <laughs> but it's becoming, uh, we're, we're getting better at it and it's becoming more safe and more reliable and it's, you know, sometimes the analogy is made with um, when humans first started flying, where, you know, uh, probably in the early 1900s, when people were flying aircraft in the early days, at least half of those flights ended in crashes as well. And same with when we first started launching rockets. And then when you're talking about landing on Mars, you always go through the same pattern where at first there's a lot of trial and error and failure, but then hopefully, you know, as technology progresses and understanding increases, it becomes more routine and you can expand to doing other things. So I, you know, it's, it's still a risky business and there's no guarantee that perseverance will be successful, but we hope that we're getting to the point where we're learning how to make these systems more reliable and, and really increase the chance of success. Uh, would you agree with Elon Musk when he says that within the next 100 years, we would have 1 million people traveling to Mars? <laughs> uh, I think I would say that I, it relies on someone who's as visionary as Elon Musk is. I think um, without that kind of visionary leadership, it won't happen. But I really respect his, um, his vision for the future and what he's trying to accomplish. And I, I have learned that you, could never, you should never underestimate him and what he can accomplish. So uh, if he's around and he can find people that can follow him with the same vision and enthusiasm, then, then you know, maybe, that, maybe that'll happen. Colonies on Mars is a very popular subject, and we've been getting a lot of questions about that as well. But I think this is a good time to get into what a lot of listeners have been asking us. We started a campaign on our Instagram page 
asking for our listeners to send in questions. Uh, we promised that we would select the top three questions from there and ask them to you on this show. But uh, I would like to let our listeners know that we are really thankful to Ashwin because he's agreed to, in fact, address and answer all the questions that have come in. If for some reason your question has not featured on, on this episode, uh, rest assured, we will be taking this up on our next episode that would be releasing in about a month. So once again, Ashwin, thank you very much for agreeing to take all these questions. And I'm sure our listeners are going to uh, love listening to what you have to say about it. So once again, Ashwin, thank you for agreeing to do this. Sure. So let me get straight into our first question. This is from Avantika Singla. And the question is, can human life exist above the Venus clouds? I, 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 I'd say yes, uh, but it really relies on taking an environment with us to protect us. So I think humans can survive anywhere if we build a environment that allows us to survive. So build a capsule, build a, you know, a living space. Uh, and above the clouds on Venus isn't probably that difficult because it's not an extreme environment per se. It, it'd be similar to being in like the space station around earth. Uh, much more challenging would be at the surface of Venus when the atmospheric pressure is about 90 times as high as it is on the surface of earth. And I don't think we quite understand yet how to build something that would survive even and protect a robot on the surface of Venus, let alone a, a human. That, that's we still have a long way to go um, to protect ourselves in that extreme of environment. Mm-hmm. And ethical gamer wants to know: Is it biologically possible to cultivate on Mars? It, it is. Uh, so what's really interesting is that. Um, our exploration of Mars has really shown uh, that the same processes of physics and chemistry, uh, you know, really do operate throughout the solar system. Um, you know, the rocks on Mars aren't made of exotic materials. They're made of the same stuff that rocks and earth are made out of. Um, it's just, you know, some things have, have been different between earth and Mars in terms of the amount of water and the, composition and thickness of the atmosphere, et cetera, that have allowed the planets to evolve in slightly different ways. But really the materials that make up the soil around where curiosity is, is not that different from what you'd find if you were on a, a volcanic region of earth. Uh, and so um, from that sense, you know, you could plant uh, and cultivate material in the soil on Mars, as long as you also uh, accounted for the things that are different. Uh, made sure that the the plants had the atmospheric density that they need, the amount of water that they need, other nutrients that they need. But there's no reason to think that the actual soil couldn't be a, a nice place to um, to grow things on Mars. Right. Our next question here is from Mr. Shubham017, who says that in the coming future of space exploration, what is it going to be all about? Is it going to be space research? Is it going to be search for extraterrestrial life or is it going to be space tourism? I guess this question is what is going to drive the future of space exploration? 
Yeah, the best answer probably is all of the above, <laughs> because we have different motivations as a society for for um, exploring space, and one of them has always been to uh, to have a human presence, and not for any scientific reason, but for the same reason that we explore the top of Mount Everest, or we go to the bottom of the ocean, or we um, you know uh, go to the moon. As with humans is just to extend the presence of humanity out to these places and to, and to, you know, with kind of an adventurous spirit um, show that we can do it. So that I think will always be there. And that sort of plays into the space tourism aspect too, where companies will exist so that they can provide that experience to other people. So they can, ex- they can extend their, you know, human presence to these places. The scientific research part, I sure hope will be there, but that's the one that really, requires you know governments and and taxpayers to see that it's important to to understand that it's important to advance science because there's really no immediate economic benefit to doing scientific research on on mars there's really no um it it doesn't it doesn't help with that that human aspect that we talked about but as with all scientific research it requires that um that societies just deem it important that, that one of one of the things that makes humans human is to learn and continually understand their surroundings. Um, so, you know, I, I really do hope that that countries continue to dedicate their resources, you know, to expanding knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Very true. And our next question is from Jude Menezes and Sepp Tupi. And the question is, what is a realistic time frame for us to be expecting human colonies on Mars? It's a good question. And, you know, I think, again, it depends, unfortunately, on, uh, on very specific events that, that come, into, come to fruition. For example, Elon Musk again. Um, when you have someone that's that passionate and that enthusiastic, you know, he's, he's making it happen faster than it otherwise would happen. I think eventually, you know, NASA and other uh, countries uh, will get there. It's, it's inevitable that one day I think we'll have humans on planets throughout the solar system. Uh, but what, what Elon Musk and others are doing are speeding up that timetable. Uh, just because they're so passionate about it and they, and they have their own sources of money, uh, for example. So I, I, ex- I fully hope that um, 20 years from now, hopefully even sooner, uh, there will be astronauts on Mars uh, carried by, at least by <laughs> companies like SpaceX, if not NASA itself. Now, colonies is another question. I, I think that's still sort of up in the air. You know, you have people like Elon Musk who are very passionate that about the fact that humans have to expand their presence to these other planets um, as a natural course of, of um, human evolution or because Earth itself is, um, uh, is not going to hold, be capable of holding people forever. And things are changing on Earth, et cetera. I'm less sure about that myself. Uh, I definitely can can imagine in my lifetime we'll have scientific outposts uh, on various planets like we have in Antarctica for now uh, on Earth. Um, whether we have permanent colonies 
for non-scientific purposes, just the living and, and having families. Um, I don't know personally. I mean, I know Elon Musk wants that, but um, it's a very, it would be a very difficult life. And I'm not sure really why, why people would do that when we have this, uh, when earth is such a wonderful planet for us to live on. Talking about long-term, we have a question here from Jitendra Kochar who says, what is the long-term goal for NASA post 2050? I'm not sure we know. <laughs> part of, uh, uh, I think part of what um, we do as, as a species is, is evolve and respond to what we're finding. And so, you know, perhaps if we were, are, if we are able to show that life was on Mars uh, definitively, you know, in the rocks that perseverance collect, that may completely change the focus of NASA to looking more closely at Mars uh, as well as um, looking at places like Titan and Enceladus because if, if life exists on two different places in the solar system, then why not three and four, five and understanding, you know, the, uh, the presence of life throughout the solar system will teach us something fundamental about life itself. If life was able to originate on multiple planets and moons in different ways, you know, independent of each other, then think about what that means for the, the possibility of life throughout the universe. Um, and yet the opposite may also be true. You know, if we never find life on Mars or Titan or Enceladus and life only exists on Earth, that tells us something fundamental too about the rarity and specialness of life on Earth. So um, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> getting off the subject here, but uh, it's discoveries that will change the course of what NASA does, you know, and, and, we, and like we talked about earlier, we were at the precipice of such a major potential discovery in the next 10 or 20 years, which I then think will determine what we do for the next 50 years. But that's really the science in terms of humans. I think um, we'll be on a steady course for the next hundred years, I believe, you know, of expanding the human presence out from the moon to Mars. Uh, and then maybe even beyond that with um, humans going out to explore the outer planets and moons, um, not just through robots, but, but actually having humans go out to those places. Sure. And Rajesh Gupta wants to know, the atmospheric pressure on Mars, how does that impact uh, your missions? It, it does. It, um, you, you have to design your landing system uh, mostly uh, to, to accommodate that low pressure. So when you land on the moon, you don't have to bring, you don't have to build a capsule around the spacecraft. You, you don't have to worry about it burning up as it lands because there's no atmosphere. <laughs> you just can land a, 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 a naked spacecraft and fire rockets and land uh, on Mars. Um, well, and, and let me contrast that with earth. When, when spacecraft are coming back from space to earth, you have to do the opposite. You have to build a big capsule around it with a big heat shield to absorb all that heat. But then once you're in the atmosphere, the atmosphere is so thick that a parachute will just slow you down wonderfully and you can gently land on the surface. Mars is right in the middle where the atmosphere is thick enough that you can easily burn up as you enter going six kilometers per second, but it's not thick enough to really slow you down with a parachute. 
So you have to have these intricate landing systems like Curiosity that involve parachutes and rockets and airbags and all kinds of things. So um, the fact that Mars has this thin atmosphere is quite challenging for missions. Our next question is from Devanshu Mishra, who says, how is NASA handling the issue of increasing levels of space debris with all the private missions that are now going on? It it is a concern. Um, It's not, um, it's not a crisis, but it requires just a lot of care. So, uh, I, you're probably referring to things like um, SpaceX launching hundreds or thousands of small satellites for broadband connections. Uh, as long as we can um, track all these different satellites and as long as they're built in ways that are kind of reliable and maybe even have ways of disposing them at the end of their lifetimes, uh, I think we can you know, control this. What's really dangerous is when um, you might have spacecraft that we lose control of, or, you know, the worst, one of the worst things is if a big satellite is uh, destroyed, if it explodes or, or if it's shot down by another country and, and, and breaks into many, many pieces, that becomes a real hazard to, um, to uh, human uh, spacecraft in particular. And we have a big fan of the Curiosity design here, that is Abhi9, who says, how did you get the idea for the design? I guess he means, what inspired the look? Uh, Yeah, it's a good question. (laughs) And uh, I don't think there was any kind of um, top-down thinking in the sense of like, we want it to look like this, and so we're going to build it to look like that. It really is a natural evolution. Um, you know, evolution is probably a good word. You know, why do, why do humans look like the way we look? Uh, and it's because, you know, we evolved needing long legs and we involved wanting a head that's high off the ground and two eyes so that we could have, you know, 3d vision. Uh, and in the same way, curiosity sort of evolved to how it looks because, of how, of what we needed it to do. We needed it to have uh, six wheels to drive over this rocky terrain, kind of a low center of mass. So you have this big wide body and the wheels are kind of spread out so that it's very stable. And then you put a little mast on it so you can see high above the ground and you put two eyes on it, cameras, um, you know, and you just end up getting there um, in the same way that that evolution does it for humans. Um, The design fits the, the function. And I think a lot of us agree that the look was really cool. I mean, the the colors that we used, the camera. Uh, there was a movie not so long ago called Volley. Yeah, that was an inspiration from that particular mission as well as in the Curiosity mission. But as far as the aesthetics go, I think it's just a stunning-looking uh, rover. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, our next question is from Mokshanga Sai Teja who says that with the Perseverance mission, you will be collecting a lot of uh, minerals from Mars and sampling that. And would that also be in some way connected to planning for future life on Mars? And is the Perseverance mission one of the first steps towards that goal? 
in in a yeah, it's not our it's not our main focus, but we certainly are part of the uh, evolution of spacecraft that will one day be able to carry humans to Mars. Like for example, one thing that Curiosity did was learn how to land uh, a one-ton uh, payload to the surface. Up up until Curiosity, we only knew how to land about 150 kilograms. And so we had to invent this entire new way of landing and learn how all that worked from the technology technology perspective. We then have to go another factor of 10 above that before we can land humans and all the cargo that they would need. Uh, So um, that's one step that Curiosity was able to, to help NASA with in just learning more and more how to build heavier and heavier spacecraft. Um, another thing we more directly did was we have an instrument that measures the radiation on the surface of Mars. And this instrument was brought with us, uh, not really because of our main scientific mission, but specifically to measure the radiation to protect future astronauts. So every day we measure how much radiation is coming uh, onto Mars from space and from the sun. And we see how that changes as the solar cycle changes, the sun goes through an 11-year cycle of activity uh, and sometimes has big storms, you know, solar storms uh, that reach Mars, and we can measure those. Uh, And we've been able to build up now an understanding of how dangerous it would be for astronauts to be on Mars' surface. Uh, And, you know, it's it's not insignificant. Um, The risk of cancer for an astronaut uh, is much higher if they're living on Mars than if they're living on Earth. But what this instrument on Curiosity has been able to show us is how we can shield those astronauts and protect them and how, how, how hard we have to try to do that in order to reduce their health risk. And uh, we have a young follower, Yash Shinde, who says, what next after Mars? Where do you plan to go? Is it going to be Jupiter, Venus? What is the next planet that we're looking at? So Venus is an extremely interesting place, but uh, pretty low on the list of where we think there might be life because um, Venus started out as being almost a sister planet to Earth. It's very similar in size, very similar to Mars, uh, to Earth in terms of its distance from the sun. But um, it just is a little closer to the sun and that, that caused it to evolve very differently to where um, it became dominated by carbon dioxide in its atmosphere and the pressure in the atmosphere built up to 90 times the, the pressure of Earth and the temperature gets extremely hot. So from a scientific standpoint, it's super interesting. But from a life standpoint, uh, not so much. And similar with Mercury uh, and the moon. So I think what I'm getting at is that there as long as the focus of NASA retain, you know, maintains on understanding the presence of life in the solar system, planets like that are going to be explored, but at a lower level. And where NASA will focus are going to be places like Mars, places like Titan, the moon of Saturn, Enceladus, the moon of Saturn, Europa, the moon of Jupiter, all of which are places like Mars where there may have been life or even could be life today. What's interesting about Enceladus and Europa in particular is that we've discovered um, over the past 20 years or so that these moons have ice shells and underneath those ice shells are liquid water oceans. 
and so, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious um, probably that when you have a lot of liquid water uh, on a planet, that is immediately a place where you'd like to go understand whether there's any life. Uh, and so I think in the next, you know, again, 20, 30, 40 years, we'll probably do a lot of exploring of those places um, to see if, if they might be places where life exists today. Europa and Titan are very interesting, especially when it comes to the possibility of life. I think we need to get a little bit more closer there. And even if there are possibilities of sending missions in the future, those missions are definitely going to be uh, very, very interesting. And our next question is from, let me get this name right. It's va.rsh4951. If we plant trees with the help of artificial water, we can get oxygen after it grows. And since trees have the ability to convert carbon dioxide to oxygen on Mars, since there is more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, is that a possibility? That's an interesting question. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, it's a great, um, great idea. And I think it's one that we might be able to use I think personally in kind of a, a limited environment, like within an enclosed uh, shelter, maybe that's a way of producing oxygen through an, through a natural system of, of growing plants. There are people who think maybe we want to terraform the entire planet, you know, by growing plants all across Mars. But um, you know, that I think is much more ambitious and, and all the, the concerns that you raised about how you bring enough water, you know, to those places uh, would come into play. But but one day, if you know humans are living in a in a big um, shelter, uh, you know maybe a hundred people are living on Mars in a in an enclosed space. Uh, it would be great, you know, to grow plants not only for food but also for oxygen. We now have a question from Jay Patel, who asks you: Can we use jetpacks while moving around in zero gravity? Um, yes, and you know, and, and that's. Um, we can use a jet suit to move around in uh, zero gravity and also in, in Mars gravity, which is about one third on earth. I think um, jet rockets are, are very useful for all kinds of, you know, maneuvering, not just with humans, but spacecraft use them all the time. Uh, so it's not necessarily a jet suit, but, <laughs> but when you see the spacecraft docking with the international space station, they're using little jet rockets um, in zero gravity uh, to move around the spacecraft. Right. Question here from Priya Virata. Would there be a combination of AI and robots to build bases on Mars? I think so. I, I think it would make sense, especially um, when we're talking about a sustained presence. Uh, I believe, you know, that in the next 20 or 30 years, what we'll probably see are, like we did with the moon, we'll see um, missions go there and then return without permanently staying. That will be the first step to live on Mars for a few months or maybe a year and then uh, go back. Once we talk about living, you know, semi-permanently on Mars, then we'll need to bring a lot more um, infrastructure. We'll need to build more bases and more equipment. And certainly, you know, robots could be sent there to begin constructing all the facilities and getting everything ready before the humans arrive. 
This one is, is interesting. Vidhi Patel wants to know, I don't know if you can answer this. Will we ever find a wormhole anytime soon? <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, that's beyond my expertise. I, I don't know the answer, but uh, hope uh, that'd be neat. <laughs> An interesting question coming to you here from Aditya Chohan, who says, if humans ever find an intergalactic civilization on Mars or any other planet, how do you think human beings would react? It's a great question. Um, and it's, it's, of course, one that a lot of people are fascinated with because, you know, you've, we have different movies that, that, and books that talk about exactly this, this subject of how we would even communicate you know, and, and show our intentions, hopefully peaceful intentions, if we ever met other intelligent life. And then, of course, you know, how people would react on Earth. I think we'd have to assume it would be pretty mixed. There would be a lot of fear. Uh, there'd be a lot of um, different reactions. And, um, and and not just, you know, uh, there. of course, there would be a lot of, I think, positive reaction too. just the, the wonder of, understanding that we're not alone in the universe. But um, I've got to imagine that initially there would be a lot of, of fear and concern as well. Well, we have a few questions here from one of our followers who goes by the name of Happy Saija. And let me read one of the questions. Mars colonization is beginning. Are there any chances in the future that countries and space agencies uh, will collaborate for space exploration. I think that is uh, already happening, right? It is happening. And it's it's not only, you know, wonderful to see that collaboration, but it's necessary. Uh, because as we do more and more ambitious things, like colonizing Mars, the cost involved and the technology involved just goes exponentially higher. And it's really something that NASA can't do alone or any country can't do alone but it requires countries to collaborate with each other. So even just bringing back the samples of perseverance from Mars to earth is going to involve multiple nations. Uh, NASA will send, of course, perseverance to collect the samples and seal them into tubes. But we're currently uh, thinking that other countries will supply the Rover that picks up those samples and deliver them to deliver them to a rocket. Uh, NASA will probably supply the rocket that blasts off from the surface of Mars and goes and takes those samples into orbit around Mars. But then again, another country, maybe a European country or um, who knows, will collect those samples from Mars orbit and bring them back to Earth. And by sharing the cost and the technology development between different countries, uh, we think is the, you know, the, that's the only way we can do something this ambitious. Okay, we have a question from a mad scientist here who goes by the name of Pralad. Well, that's the way he's described himself. And the question is, how would we be able to create a magnetic field on Mars? Yeah, I mean, the, um, you know, my my vision may be more limited than Elon Musk's, but to me, it sounds it sounds very difficult to think of doing something that would that would shield the entire planet with a magnetic field again, because it was originally formed by movements of molten rock underground that are of enormous scale compared to, you know, human beings. 
Um, but you know, it's perhaps we can do it at a more local scale where we can shield a particular shelter where humans are living from radiation by, by having a magnetic field. And now you have a Curiosity Rover fan here. Akash Verma says, can you please reuse the Curiosity Rover and could that be done? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love that too. Um, I'm, I'm just glad it's lasted as long as it has. And we think probably at least another few years left. Um, but eventually, you know, the electronics and all the parts that have been subjected to this very harsh environment on Mars with um, cold temperatures and hot temperatures and radiation um, wear out. And at some point, um, the rover will just no longer be um, uh, able to function. Uh, it, it won't go anywhere. So I think, you know, one of the things that we can look forward to in, in 30 years, you know, 50 years, is that one day maybe we can go as tourists to Mars and see some of these rovers. You know, we'll build little museums around them and be able to see how humans first were able to reach the surface of Mars in, a, in an era that maybe it's become a lot more commonplace. Great. Our next question here is from Karthik Shetty. And his question is, what are your thoughts on interstellar travel? And when do you think we would be uh, a type one civilization? The current uh, accepted uh, time frame is approximately about 100 years from now for us to be a type one civilization, right? Okay, yeah. And that, I mean, that sounds about right. Um, the, it, it does take time for technology to develop. Uh, and you have to... You have to hope that civilization itself remains stable and continues to pursue things like science and technology. Um, so far, you know, in my lifetime, that's been very good. I've, I think we've lived through an enormously amazing era some, from, you know, 1900 to the, to the present where we've gone from not even flying planes to um, having, you know, humans about to go out to Mars one day. Um, let's hope the next hundred years is as aggressive in pursuing um, things like that. Right. We just have a couple of questions left. And this one is from Darshav who wants to know why is it difficult to land the Rover on the North pole of the moon? I'm not sure about the North pole, but uh, would you be able to answer this? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I may not know some particular detail of why he's heard that it's, um, or they've heard that it's hard um, yeah, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, the, we can land, I, I believe we can land anywhere on the moon. Um, there's just, there's more interest in landing on the Southern pole of the moon currently because, um, there's a, a huge basin, uh, uh, called the South polar Aitken basin where uh, a giant impact occurred in the moon's history and it may have excavated material from deep inside the moon. So by landing on near the South pole of the moon, we can explore more about the interior of the moon, even just by landing on the surface at either the North or South poles. We believe that there's ice, uh, water ice, uh, which was a discovery that's just happened in the past, you know, 20 years or so um, where um, because the moon, uh, spins vertically with respect to the sun, the, the sun only hits the poles of the moon at a very um, shallow angle. It just glances the top of the, the North and South poles. So any mountains that are at the North or South poles create shadows that, uh, that may never be sunlit. Uh, 
So there are valleys in between mountains at the north and south poles of the moon that never receive any sunlight. And these places are among the coldest places in the entire solar system. And ice can accumulate there and survive for billions of years. Uh, so it's really interesting because that ice may be a record uh, of the solar system's you know, history of billions of years. But also, of course, that ice may represent a resource that astronauts can use. So we're very interested to go to the poles of the moon with astronauts because of their scientific value, but also because there's water there to sustain humans. Right. I think he's talking about the South Pole and the ISRO mission that just took place. I see, yep. So one last question for you here, and this comes to you from Sister Tube. What is the possibility of the Curiosity rover meeting Perseverance? So are they going to have a meetup sometime soon uh, on Mars? That'd be really cool. But um, so far the plans are are not to do that. Um, And that's because we we get so few chances to explore Mars that we really want to send these rovers to different places. There's so many places on Mars that we would like to explore. So every chance we get to send a new rover, we send it to somewhere different. It is interesting though, because we really did think a lot about where to send perseverance. Um, As we talked about curiosity discovered that Mars was once a habitable place. It had water, it had carbon, had all those other things. So why not send perseverance exactly where curiosity is? to have the best chance of collecting samples that may contain evidence of life. It it makes a lot of sense. But in the end, we decided not to do that uh, and instead to send Perseverance to somewhere that is similar to Gale Crater, where Curiosity is, but also would give us the chance to explore a brand new place. Right, Ashwin. And as we wind down, uh, Curiosity has been around, interacting with us now for Um, nearly eight years and it represents an ideal and over all these years you must have built some kind of relationship with it because it's much more than just a rover on mars now i guess for you It, it is it's it's our virtual presence on mars we feel very connected um you know that there are there of course is the connection you build with the robot which is more than you, you might imagine you'd have a connection with just a machine. But uh, robots have personalities. They have quirks. You learn to live with them every day. Um, and, and I know that a number of our engineers at JPL, uh, especially when, with spirit and opportunity, you know, when those spacecraft were eventually ended their missions, there was a, a sense of loss, a sense of like not having – um, this robotic, you know, companion that you've had for so many years. And I'm, I'm sure I'll feel the same way with curiosity, but, you know, also I think I've just, in a way I've, I've lived the last eight years of my life partially on Mars. You know, it's, it's been a very common experience for me to wake up in the morning and to see what the weather is on Mars and to look at where the Rover is and, and look at the rocks and plan my next, you know, my next walk around on the surface of Mars through the rover. Uh, and so even in that way, I have this connection to being on Mars uh, that, uh, that is, is really unique um, that we're able to do that. That's so cool. Just the thought of having 17 eyes on Mars and a laser, uh, just 
throw it at at any rock that passes by if you're having a bad day it's true i mean i know parts of mars better than i know my own neighborhood <laughs> oh seriously i can only imagine that uh, moving around and capturing fresh images with data and with every move specifically images that no human has ever seen before you don't know what you're going to see next right it's not like you're moving in a vehicle or you you're walking around somewhere on earth where you have a 360 degrees you know what's coming but looking at these images coming all the way from mars that must be a stunning experience it's true you know and that's that's really coming back to the very beginning of our conversation that is what has really driven me since i was a child you know that sense of exploration and you know my first experience with that was not curiosity it was with a spacecraft called galileo uh which explored jupiter and i was a a graduate student at caltech and involved in in galileo and we were just about to arrive at jupiter for the first time in the whole mission it hadn't been there yet and um we took we had planned a number of pictures of jupiter after the spacecraft arrived and they were going to come down at um you know middle of the night and so i was in the basement of some building at caltech as the images came down in the middle of the night i looked at them opened them up on my computer and saw these pictures of the storms on jupiter and i'll never forget you know the moment that it just hit me that i'm the only person in the entire earth that's ever seen these sites before no one else is awake <laughs> no one else is looking at these pictures and here i'm seeing things you know from hundreds of millions of miles away for the first time and i get to do that you know every morning now on curiosity as well oh that's truly awesome and i'm sure the students listening in are really inspired like you were on that day and if you had a chance ashwin to speak to them directly what would your message to them be our future pioneers and one what would you tell them about the values that need to be looked into as they go down this path and two how do they prepare technically yeah it it's um it's yeah it's it's hard to give advice that works for everyone but i really do uh hope that people will just nurture their their passion you know what drives exploration like this is um it it's definitely not just something we do for a job for money for uh fame or anything like that there's a lot of things you can do on earth to to get money or fame but what drives things like planetary exploration is is curiosity uh is uh you know this is why um we uh, we name this the spacecraft like this it requires curiosity it requires this passion for understanding the world around us you know the in the the world meaning the universe around us and it requires you know perseverance to um to solve problems that have never been solved before that seem impossible you know landing a one ton rover on another planet understanding whether there's microbes that lived 3 billion years ago there was a time when we had no idea how to do that but it took creativity and curiosity and and perseverance to uh, to to answer those questions so one thing is just to never lose that spirit you know and if that's what your passion is you know nurture it and follow it uh, and 
uh, and know that it will come with some sacrifice. Uh, of course, I've been very fortunate that you know I've never had to sacrifice too much for what I do. But on the other hand, there's lots of other ways to make a lot of money and, and work less. Um, but what a privilege that I've been able to do what I do, even though it's it's it required a lot of hard work and a lot of following my dreams rather than following other things. Um, in terms of preparing, uh, that that's when you really it becomes a very personal thing. You have to find um, your particular area that you think you can contribute the best in. Fortunately we need so many different kinds of people to do what we do. Even within science, there's so many different fields of science. Curiosity studies rocks, it studies the atmosphere, it studies life, it studies chemistry, it studies biology, it studies geology, all these different areas. Um, and the engineering side, it's similar. We need you know, dozens of different kinds of engineers to maintain the robotic systems of the rover, the thermal systems, the electronic systems, the software, the radio communications. Uh, so there's so many different fields. And the best thing to do is to find what field really ignites your passion and then to become as absolutely good as possible at that field so that when the opportunities arise to work on very, these very special missions, um, you're the one that gets selected to contribute to that. Well, I don't think we need to say anything more here. Ashwin, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. And thank you once again for your time. Wow. We have spent our time well here, Ashwin, listening to you. And from everyone at Indian Genes, once again, would you ever put yourself through this again? <laughs> no it's uh it's my pleasure and um it uh it's a important part of my job also i mean we need to communicate these things to everyone especially younger people so i, I appreciate that you're doing that and uh, thank you for having me mm-hmm. 